This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture and Everyday Life podcast produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology with a research and public engagement remit covering the North East and North of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. It's seven long years since my true love left me. It's seven long years since he's went to sea. It's seven long years since my laddies left me. Will he ever come home for the marry It's seven long years since my true love left me. It's seven long years since his winter wall. It's seven long years since my true love's left me. He was the best in Utaman. And I can't my bed, I often wonder. And as I pray, and as I pray, I pray to my only God in heaven. Will he send my back him one day? Is that at my bedroom window? Who keepeth me famous next rest? Who is that at my bedroom window? Who causes pain? not my mother, tis not my father, tis not my brother, no, nor sister too, tis not my father, nor yet my mother, and who it is I know. Open the door, I and let me in, my love. Open the door, and let me in. For I am called the love, and I'm tired and weary. And I am soaking love in tea. 
opened the door with the greatest of pleasure. She has opened the door and she is Latin saying, if that's ye welly, ye hae lost your colour. For ye are nae like the young man I used But she's in his hand, and she's led him to a room. For on the bed a young child slept. She said, this is the sun that ye can never see. And for some moments, the young man wept. But they went a-walking, and they went a-talking, till the early hours at the break of day. I they went a-walking, and they went a-talking, until he said, love, I must away. But they kept on walking, and they kept a-talking, till the early cock he began to crawl. He said, I must away, love, I can stay no longer, for far I'm bound for a fartigo. Oh, will he please, oh, please don't leave me. Oh, will he please don't go back to see. Oh, will he please, oh, please don't leave me. Why can't you stay here and marry me? He said, I must away, love. I can bide me longer, although this parting brings me more pain. And fan I'm gone, pray for me no longer, for never no more can I come home again. That's a song called Seven Long Years, or many other things. Um, it's taken us about eight and a half minutes to sing that and listen to it in this collective experience of ballad singing. And that's part of the aspect of time in ballads that I want to talk about, the actual time and space they take in a room, in a performance. Now, each of us has experienced something there. Um, you're maybe thinking about the story you're thinking, oh, he's singing, if we could call it that. Um, you may be thinking, what does it resonate? Does that story resonate with you? Uh, you may be thinking, it's sunny today, uh, and not paying any attention at all. You may think, where did he learn that? Uh, what's it really about? Why is he doing this to us? Uh, so there are lots of questions that you might be asking yourself about the song or not about the song, in reaction to the song, in relationship with the song and many other dimensions in which time uh, play, plays a part. But 
regardless of what those thoughts are, we've had shared time, that shared eight and a half minutes, according to my car clock anyway, um, as I was timing it this morning on the way in. Um, it's a shared time, it's a shared experience. We all take different things away from that, but we have shared space and time. Focus together on a central point, and reception theory tells us that you take away as much as I'm giving and vice versa, and I take something from each of you while singing the song. If somebody's looking like this, you know, I might sing a little faster or leave out a verse. If I'm looking at somebody who's very interested, then I'll turn on the waterworks, you know, and put a croak in the voice and make it more emotional. Not any of this really deliberately, but it does, there's a symbiotic relationship between us and we play off each other in various ways. Even though we're all focused on the same thing, the experience is very different. Um, some of you might have thought it was an hour long. When's it going to be over? Another, another real ballad enthusiast who likes the minutiae of such stories might have thought it was over quite quickly. Um, somebody used to MTV videos with 10 second jump cuts is not going to be able to pay attention to that sort of long storyline that's found in a ballad. So different experiences that we bring uh, to the, the listening experience. James Porter talks about meaning being created in the space. Space is the word he uses between the singer and the listener. So meaning, I have ideas of meaning in my head, you have ideas of meaning in your head, and somewhere we meet and create something collective as well as our own individual experience. But it's ephemeral. And once that space is gone, that space that was created by the communication that was happening there, then that particular experience, place and time is gone. And we all take away a version of it in our heads. And as anybody who's looked at a study of uh, eyewitnesses will know, what we take away in our heads is not necessarily what happened or what we heard. Uh, people have different ideas of how a song ended or the motivations of characters. And gradually over time, sometimes those change quite a lot. Arne Merrillai talks about the ballad pasted onto the linear flux of time. So the ballad, time is moving on like the proverbial river and we sort of paste the ballad onto it for a little while. And so we take a little section of that river. Um, what if time is circular, of course, and we might sing that ballad again sometime. We might um, perform the same song with the same group of people or a slightly different group, but nevertheless there is an aspect of circularity to tradition which might be a useful, um, useful model as well, apart from the straight linear idea, which is actually a pretty recent idea about how culture works, how time works. You know, in the big picture, I think linearity is, is a, a fairly young concept. Um, in fact, songs, as Merrillet suggests, may reflect an encounter between two differing ideas of how time works, the linear and the circular. And within a ballad singing tradition like the Stuarts of Fetterangus here in the northeast of Scotland, where song is a part of life, a part of everyday routine, there's more of a circularity. And within the ballads themselves, in terms of their stories and their cycles uh, and the patterns within them, you know, the David Buchan structural type patterns, um, there is a circularity as well. So may maybe there's a meeting of, of a couple of different cultures uh, in the performed song. Now, of course, that song was just sung with and without any sort of preliminary information. Um, 
and it wasn't really unpacked as far as the story goes afterwards. Whereas in a folk club situation or in a natural ballad singing situation, for want of a better term, or even Kenny Goldstein's induced natural context, there will be introduction to the song uh, which contextualizes it, setting its performance roots and its, um, sometimes its historical setting as well. The traveler tradition here in the northeast of Scotland is very strong in this, uh, in contextualizing, using contextualizing narratives to frame the songs and the place and time and indeed the interpretation of the song. The Stuart family of Fetterangus, for example, use those stories to contextualize a ballad called The Jolly Beggar, um, which is uh, in which they use opening narratives to, to set the scene for the song and talk about the king, the character in the song, not to tell the story of the song, but completely separate narratives that are attached to the song um, that they will tell either before or after. Um, and you might want to join in here. There was a jolly beggar, and a begging he was bound, and he stayed up his quarters in Scotland, but doon, and rode yon in mirror roving, so they didn't take it in and we're going to get a Shall have saved 
told a story of an adventuring king dressed up as a beggar, goes from house to house, a song that resonates particularly with travelers because he's going from house to house trying to find out uh, how his uh, subjects are getting on. At least that's what the legend says. The song doesn't actually say that. In fact, he's, um, we'll come to that in a minute. But there's a divergence between the plot of legends and the song, as performed by the Fetaranga Stuart, certainly. A divergence that maybe explains why both forms continue to exist, because they're not the same thing. They don't tell the same story, and so both are needed. The legends fundamentally tell of a good-hearted king, curious about his subjects, anxious to protect them, whereas the ballads, in strictly, strictly textual readings, tell respectively of a king fond of casual seduction at best and seduction abduction or worse at worst. Uh, so these narratives, nevertheless, are remembered and told together with the song, clearly connected in the performer's minds. Perhaps the narrative has a didactic function around, uh, around history, the social issues and social instruction as well. Um, Lucy Stewart tells a James V story. This is good King James, so-called. Um, she tells a story associated with him of Dois de Seigneur, um, of uh, being, that being thwarted through the offices of the king coming to rescue the young woman from the local laird. The ballad is streamlined though it doesn't tell that story. It's reworked into entertainment. Um, and there are ballads with a strong social message, of course, but this is not one of them. And despite his reputation in the historical record as, uh, as one scholar said, the most pleasant, unpleasant of all the Stuarts, which is going some, um, James V is persistently called Good King James in traveler tradition and in, in, indeed in broader Scottish history as well. In the traveler community, this might be because of his historically benevolent attitude towards gypsies, which was very out of step with other European monarchs at the time. So he becomes a figure of, uh, of respect for them. Now, these contextualizing narratives um, function in three ways. Completion, filling in perceived gaps in the story in some songs, uh, or anchoring to fix the song into a relevant time period or education to develop uh, an instructive aspect of the song's message. <clears throat> an example of completion is Stanley Robertson's Willie of Winsbury, where he introduces the song, sings it, digresses as necessary to fill out details of plot and historical context, the time framing sort of activity. This slide shows the integrated structure, and you're not intended to read that, don't worry. It's not actually uh, to, be, to be legible. It's meant graphically to show you the black bits here are the song, and all this blue stuff here, uh, rather more compact because it's not song lyrics, but look at the amount of information there. That's a simply A singing, one rendition of Willie Winsbury live, so to speak, with interpolated information, almost every verse, and quite a lot of it, lots before, lots during. Um, so it's quite a dramatic... Uh, overlay on the song or interpolations within the song. And that is a kind of natural performance represented there on the screen for a ballad in, within traveler tradition. It's not somebody standing up on a stage and singing their seven and a half minute ballad like I did just now at the start. It's usually, I won't say interrupted, but interspersed with these contextual ideas and explanations. So there's, um, 
The introduction is 159 words, prose interpolations, 247 words, song lyrics of 335. So a little bit more interpretation than song. So it's about 4060 song to, uh, to interpolation. Um, when he sung Son David uh, for us in class, uh, in one of Ian's classes, the song was four minutes and 20 seconds and the explanations right in and around the song were more than 11 minutes, between 11 and 12 minutes. So a huge amount, really, of, um, of contextual information built into the song. And Stanley was perfectly capable of taking a ballad and talking about it for two hours, during and after and before the song. The minutiae of, of diction, of uh, why certain words were chosen, the historical background, who he got it from, which verses he didn't sing or did sing, uh, he was also an extraordinary person in that he could jump into uh, the scholarly lingo in and out of, of academe as well. He could talk about child numbers and, um, and the history that child talks about in, in his published versions of some songs. Um, so he had a huge uh, constellation of information surrounding songs, almost endless really. Uh, and we have some video recordings of him teaching a ballad class, you know, a two-hour ballad class one song, sometimes even five, six verses, would be unpacked in this way. And then you could appreciate the kind of depth uh, that, um, that ballad singing can acquire and sometimes needs to be understood properly in its social setting and its historical setting and its family settings. In, for anchoring, um, where we're explicitly tying a song to a historical period, uh, Stanley also did that with the Bonnie Husa Early. It's set in the time of the Jacobite rebellions in the late 17th century. It's often mistaken to be about a hundred years later, but Stanley was very firm on setting the song in its proper context. Um, it uh, historically belongs to about a century earlier than many people, uh, than many people place it. In the education kind of song, the education contextualizing a social message is brought out of the song and the commentary is given a didactic spin which uh, places the song within a social context, that space where, uh, where families and children and adults learn about each other and learn about community and learn, um, learn about how to move forward in the world. Um, there's always a degree of didactic performance um, within traveler tradition and sometimes in dialogue as well with somebody who's sitting there in the audience and you get this to and fro communication between singer and listener as well. Place within songs, I want to turn now to uh, being uh, aware of the place around us as we're singing. We're here in a, um, in a curious library building which is not necessarily the most uh, obvious place to be singing ballads, but why not? Um, so the space between, as I said, is where meaning is created, uh, and there's a real and virtual space of now. The recent past that we just heard, that, that verse we just heard, um, and each time you remember that in the future, that moment, you're recreating that moment in your head. Memory turns out, according to recent studies, is really reliving, recreating. Your brain is actually re reworking those electrical signals that, that, they were that were stimulated in the original experience. So thinking and imagination and thought therefore are reality because we're redoing them, we're rethinking them.
But by extension, that either of those songs also takes me to Fetter Angus, me personally, because of having learned those songs from Elizabeth Stewart. Um, so I'm thinking about Lucy Stewart, her aunt, photographed by Kenneth Goldstein in 1959. Um, beautiful photo, I think. Um, so that's the place where Kenny Goldstein spent a year with them, so I have an American connection with him. Um, and I have a connection with the family through visiting Elizabeth Stewart many times. There he is, a young Kenny Goldstein with Lucy Stewart. Um, and that takes me back in terms of my experience of their family with talks with Elizabeth about her grandmother being on the road collecting rags. Um, so it's a life that isn't mine, obviously. Um, and yet it is, uh, it is relevant to my experience of the song. And so it takes me to these different places and these different times. Elizabeth talks about, uh, when I sing these ballads, I'm singing from my heart and I'm feeling that I'm part of the story. When I sing the cruel mother, I am the cruel mother. I didn't condemn her for murdering her bairns. I think on how she was brought to that situation because of the times she lived in. And I feel that, she's, that the hurt that she's bearing because of what she did. These ballads really have the ability to make me physically ill because I feel the stories on the characters to be surreal and so close to me. And that's all bound up in my family tea. We all, Betty, we Lucy and my mother, we all cherish the ballads as much as I do, as I do, and like myself, got very emotional singing them. So she's in that world. She's within the song when she's singing it, and the song is having a very strong effect on her. Once any of you who sing, and I, th I think most of you do, um, once you're inside a song, you're there. Just like being at a movie, you know. You just place yourself in the story. So let's uh, turn to time uh, in the song itself. Once we get into the song, uh, that first song, Seven Long Years Ago, the time is framed as seven long years ago. And we have several aspects of time. These are not technical Latin cases. Um, just uh, some evocative terminology, I hope. Past, now, the continuing present, ongoing things. Futures over here, and then the future way over there. That's Norway, just over there. That's the distant future. So the song moves through time pairs of past and now, and then now and continuing present. And it's these overlapping pairs um, as it moves forward, oscillating between time frames and slowly moving from past experience as the song continues into ho future hope or fate, or both. Um, and this gra gradual shift through the song from the past over and done with to the present and then on to future um, keeps us awake and focused. It sets the scene, it draws us forward, it pulls us forward um, in quite a dynamic way. So with that song in the past, uh, this is, um, again, you don't really need to read the words, but think about as we go through the song, time, this direction, we're moving from past stuff to things that's happening now, onwards to uh, the future that might happen, and then finally to the future that is going to happen, never, no more. And that those lines are um, particularly uh, emphasized, you know, never, no more. It's not just, I can't come home again, folks. It's never, no more, can I come home again. And the line before that, actually, I find quite evocative because there's this, when I'm gone, pray for me, no longer. You know, it's over. You, you've been praying for me this whole time, and that's good. You've done the right thing. 
but pray for me, pause no longer. At least I like to put a little bit of pause in there to create the ambiguity. <clears throat> so it's starting in the past here, seven long years since my true love left me, um, and then into the continuing present. When I go to my bed, this is sort of right now, uh, often wonder, often do pray, and then we move on um, after, after he appears, and he's through the door and so on, we get this, they kept walking and they kept talking, and that's never a good thing to do. Don't ever keep doing something uh, in a story or a ballad, because it's going to end badly. Uh, we have our indeterminate future. Will he ever, will he ever come home to Miami? Will he send my Willie back to me home one day, sort of hoping something might happen, something positive? Uh, when he comes in through the door, you've lost your color. It's a telltale sign, obviously. Um, he hasn't been to Ibiza, gotten a tan. Um, you may like the young man I used to ken. Well, he's dead, uh, so that makes sense. Um, but that little reference to the past there, linking the middle of the song, the sort of crux of the song, to that beginning, which was, which was uh, in the past seven long years ago. Um, and then she makes a sort of final bid to keep him in the present. This is the sun that you've never seen. And for some moments, the young man wept. Moments, you know, right now, the young man wept. Um, a sort of final bid to keep him here in the present before he starts talking about, I must away, I can stay no longer. And that sort of thing, I can stay no longer. Um, and when I'm gone, pray for me no longer. And never no more can I come home again. So we're firmly... Um, in the future, this ain't going to happen. So that's the rest of the rest of her life and the rest of eternity dealt with there. <coughs> my phone's quietly ringing in my pocket, but unlike Paul Anderson during a NAFCO concert, I should not answer it <laughs> while while he was playing. <laughs> that was quite amusing. Um, so there are echoes of of that first chart that I showed you of the progression through time with these little runs back, you know, sort of retrograde motion and then forward, you know, one step back, two steps forward, getting through the song. Um, reminiscent of Bill McCarthy's and David Buchan's ballad structures, you know, the structural way of looking at song verses and annular patterning and that sort of thing. This isn't annular, obviously, but it's a, it's a kind of progression, that kind of zigzag progression. Um, I should really draw a more sophisticated zigzag, obviously, but the overall motion through that song is as we go through time we move further and further away from the past. So as the song moves, that seven and a half minutes that we all experienced, so too the verses and language within it are moving along. So the, the first verse, even if we sung the first verse last, it would, it would, uh, it would be that past time. Uh, so I think the motion through the song, the time that we spend listening to the song, is reflected in that progression through time within the song. So outside the song, time is moving. Inside the song, time is moving, which I think is quite, quite clever of the, of the song makers. The present, although it is sweet, can no longer be, and the present must always become the past, never to be revisited. And now it now is always then, and the future always looms, and it's gone, these pasts that we've created. The moves from tense to tense are a little bit disquieting sometimes, and we don't quite know where we are. So as Christina pointed out yesterday, time orients us and also disorients us. These, these uh, disjunctures disorient us from 
our sure footings. Likewise, the wife of Usher's well has analog analogous structure of past, present, and future incremental progress. I day mourn for my three bonny sons that death hae taen through me. That's one of the earlier verses where things are in the past, sort of scene setting. That's what happened. Um, it fell upon the Yule time, then we're getting into the, right into the present where we're beginning to, it's still past, but it's about to introduce the woman, the wife of Usher's well, actually taking part in the action. And then once, they, once her, her dead sons arrive, um, come ben, come ben, my three bonny sons, come ben and sup with me, and are this who shall sup the next. New my three sons are here, blow up the fire, my maidens are, bring water for the well, and are this who shall sup the next. New my three sons are hail. So there she is re rehearsing the future there. She's got her sons in front of her, my three sons are whole, my three sons are here, we'll all have a meal. Perfectly normal, everyday things. Ghosts don't generally eat, they're not generally whole in the whole, we're living sense. Uh, so she's mistaken there, or she's just telling herself, this is how it's gonna be, it's gonna be fine. Not to worry, things are gonna be fine, boys. Uh, but of course it isn't. Uh, we win us up, we mither. No drink we ony o your wine. Nor drink we ony o your well water, though it come fe tap or ton. Now, they're not doing all those normal things. It's directly in contrast to what she's hoping for and expecting. Um, she um, has had this aspiration, and they're they're saying no, that's not going to happen. They put their dead feet down. But the cock he crawled a merry morning, and he flapped his wings so wide. And the eldest day, the youngest said, it's time we must away. For the cock he crawled a merry morning, and he flapped his wings so wide. For the gates of heaven will be shut, and we'll be missed away. So they have. A, uh, a more powerful, um, a more powerful ruler, or I suppose, uh, in interlocutor, than her. They have to go to heaven. They have to speak to a higher power. So now the ghost is rehearsing the future. If we do not obey our future, we'll be found out and implied punished. Is what they're saying. You know, we have to get out of here. The gates of heaven will be shut. Uh, and they'll probably be punished with some typical balladic punishment like ringing a bell for seven years or something unpleasant like that. Um, so on to another song now, Lord Gregory. I am a king's daughter, that straight fake upper quen, in search of Lord Gregory, may God I find him. The wind beats on my yellow locks, the dew does wet me skin. The baby lies cold in my arms, Lord Gregory, let me in. Lord Gregory's no here, and he cannot be seen. He's gone to Bonnie Scotland to bring him his new queen. 
Oh, leave new days when days unlike wise as for it's deep in the sea you should hide your doomfall. Do ye remember Lord Gregory that night in Copper Quinn when we exchanged pocket handkerchiefs and laughed against my will? Yours was fine linen, and mine was coarse cloth. Yours cost one guinea, love, and mine but a groat. Leave news these windies, and likewise this ha, for it's deep in the sea, you should hide your doom far. Oh, shoe my parents little fit, or put gloves upon her hands. Foul tie up her middle with a long and green band. And foul came her yellow hair, with an ivory came. Foul be my parents feather, till Lord Gregory comes in. No leave no these windies, and likewise this ha, for it's deep in the sea, you should hide your doomfall. Oh, my curse on ye, mother, and my curse it be in sere, I dreamt the lasso ochrim was knocking on my door. Oh, lie doon, lie doon, ye foolish son, lie doon and go sleep, for it's long ago her weary locks are waving in the deep. Come saddle me, my dear black horse, the brune o'er the bay, come saddle the fastest steed in my stable. This day, and we'll ride over mountains and valleys say wild till I find the lasso of him and I'll lay by her side. So we've got again past, present, and future, sort of simpler model. Um, little hint of the past there. I'm a king's daughter now. I've strayed for Capricorn in search of Lord Gregory. May God I find him. So that first verse has quite a lot of, uh, of action in it, tense-wise. Um, so we have um, the wind beats on my yellow locks, pretty much in the present. The wind beats on my yellow locks and the dew does wet me skin. The baby's cold in my arms. Let Lord Gregory let me in. Little hint of the possible future there. Again, rehearsing what she wants to happen. Um, but then the mother comes to the door and says, leave new these windows and likewise this hall, for it's deep in the sea, you should hide your downfall. The fact that you're pregnant out of wedlock, you should go and drown yourself. Um, and this is a bit cruel because we're always told we can rehearse our future, but this is somebody else rehearsing her future. Nobody said that. Somebody else is going to rehearse your future and that's the way it's going to be for you. Um, like death in the Stanley Robertson story that Sheena told yesterday, or death comes to Samara, where you think you're rehearsing your future and it turns out somebody else is pulling the strings.
So she makes her version uh, of the past, she makes her plea, do you remember, Lord Gregory, the past, this anchor of history that we have, which will uh, inform us going forward. She makes her plea in the, pres in the, in the past there. Um, yours was fine linen, mine was coarse cloth. That's all in the past. And then again, the mother, back in the present, leave now, fuck off. Um, so um, the woman tries a couple of gambits, you know. She tries, uh, I'm here right now, the baby's cold. And the mother says, go away. Then she tries, okay, we have this history to fall back on. She says, go away. And the next section, what's going to happen next? Who's going to shoe the bairn's feet? Who's going to glove her hands? Who's going to comb her hair? And finally, the, she really tries to twist the knife there. Who will be the bairn's father till Lord Gregory comes home? And the mother, back in the present, just keeping to her line, keeping to her storyline, leave now these windows. Just like a politician when they say, minister, what about X? And he says, well, what I would say is this. He's got his message. He's staying on message. She's staying on message and controlling the fate of the woman by simply staying fixed in that time frame, not letting any of this other influence or any other evidence come into her, um, come into her purview or softening in any way. Then Lord Gregory wakes up. He gets past the, uh, the sort of time-anchored past. I dreamt the last of Aaron or Ochrim was knocking at my door. She's back in the present. Lie down, lie down, things are fine. Um, lie down, go to sleep. It's a little bit futuring there. Um, and then this jump back to the past. So she's now drawing on the past as, as authority. Don't worry, she's dead already. There's no point in worrying. Um, it's all done. Go to sleep. Things will be fine. The past is gone. The present is a disaster. And all that's left for him, really, is to rehearse his future. I'll go over the mountains and valleys so wild enough. I will find the lass of Akhrib, and I will lie by her side. Wherever she is, um, the future is, it has become his refuge for hope and despair at the same time. So here in this song as well, we see this gradual progression forward from anchored past time to an uncertain, um, or rather, since it's a ballad, a, a very certain and increasingly bleak future. The pattern shows that the woman tries these various gambits. You know, she tries that present argument, and the mother stays steadfastly in the present. She tries the past, she tries the future. None of these gambits work. Uh, so it's a kind, really, of incremental repetition, this, this movement from past to present and present to future and then back to these pairs, this sort of zigzag motion. A kind of incremental repetition, or rather excremental repetition, as Bill liked to call it. Um, and it's generally, you know, it applies here to time as well as to language and, uh, and the structure of the song. Incremental repetition is commonly said to, uh, to push forward the action, but Bill always maintained that it was rather to retard the action, to keep things building up, slowly. You don't just move from A to B or A to F. You move from A to B, B to C. This, so it's incremental. It's a way of slowing down the action, of increasing the suspense, also giving the singer sometimes a bit more time with formulate repetitions to think what they're doing. Um, but I think the idea of retarding the action, building up a head of steam or a, a wall of water behind the dam before the end of the song for the denouement of the song is an important concept. And I think uh, that's probably a better 
a better way to think of incremental repetition in general. So going back to connections between David Buchan's and Bill McCarthy's ideas of ballad structure, we can look at the, the tense thing as happening a couple of times within, uh, within the song. So the blue line would be the, the, the tense from, from past to, uh, to present to future, but also in place, when they're talking about the past, it's over there. And when they're talking about the present, it's here now and the future, a couple of different places we could go. Uh, so there are a couple of different places mentioned. So the, the, the place patterning follows the time patterning quite well. And you might think about the, uh, those places in terms of geographies, and there's a sort, of, a sort of constellation. I like to think of tradition often as a constellation because there are all these dimensions. Everywhere you look, there's another connection that can be made. Um, so they were both in Capricorn. They've now arrived here. The mother says, oh, he's over there. Uh, and they both end up going there, but she goes straight there, and he sort of winds around. I didn't, couldn't find a nice curvy line. Uh, but he winds around and finds himself beyond the beyond, in the unknown, really, waving in the deep. We don't know what the, I mean, we know what the deep is, but we don't know where it is. It doesn't matter where it is, but it is a, it is a ballad place. So this is a journey towards the unknown. Uh, from the known, the lover's common experience of Capricorn, where they met, exchanged handkerchiefs, um, and then to an unknown and probably nasty future. Um, a divergence from the shared space and time towards a diverse and unshared space and time towards the unknown, so that, that Annie, the woman, and Lord Gregory diverge, and then there's this artificial divergence. You know, they're six feet away from each other. He's in the castle asleep, and the mother isn't telling him, um, but according to the mother, he's elsewhere. So there's this place divergence, a, a sort of virtual place divergence there. So these songs link us to a distant past, a world, a, a world less safe, less predictable, where travel and separation were difficult, dangerous, long and hard sometimes. And this is a song too, as Gerald Porter has shown, sung by travelers uh, in terms of their displacement and their social, uh, the differential social levels in society and the various rights that they had or didn't have. Um, can be expressed through singing this song, through taking this song on board and the story that it contains. For me, time and place in ballads are evoked within and outside the song. During the song or in discussing it, uh, I'm part of the world with a well-defined then and soon, now, then and soon. Uh, and so too the outside of the song is evocative of where I heard it 20 years ago in a living room in Edinburgh, this particular song, uh, and where that version com comes from, which is, uh, that's the man I learned it from, Cahill McConnell, you might recognize. Uh, and this is uh, where his version of the song comes from, my wife's home county in Ireland. So I have lots of associations of place and time with that song in an external way. So time and place are thus not shown to be absolutes. I, I think that's, you know, that's an obvious thing. Um, we often feel and think them to be sort of absolute in some way. Uh, but rather they're fluid, relative, and simply functional aspects of language and experience. Aspects which, like much of folklore, help us make sense of the world, and uh, sometimes in challenging and unpleasant ways, uh, but help us deal with what's to come, and I suppose rehearsing the future, however unpleasant that might be. So, thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.